Okay, I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to start the talk. Um, a few things uh, I want to share with you. One of them, um, one of them, we were we were talking a little bit about um, over Shabbos, uh, but I think uh, most of you weren't there for this. Uh, I, I had the opportunity. Uh, to talk to some uh, some very smart kids actually coming up, um, and uh, I was thinking about like what am I going to say to them, and I don't know if I'll end up saying this, but this is uh, this is um, kind of what what came out um, in my head anyway. I want to share it with you, which is um, the difference between uh, intelligence and wisdom. Um, Intellect is, is very important, and um, if you have a great intellect, that, that's certainly a good thing. But it's not as good as wisdom. <laughs> wisdom is much better. So I'd like to define wisdom in the following way. Um, that wisdom is, is intellect plus life experience. If you have intellect and you filter it properly through a deeper understanding of the true nature of existence, that's wisdom. Um, intellect in and of itself is not enough. Intellect in and of itself um, can be ultimately divorced from reality and might ultimately be untrue. I think I shared with you one of my favorite uh, Elvis Costello uh, song titles, or maybe it was an album title, called My Brilliant Mistake, which is, or, or something my grandfather used to say, which I always used to like, which is smart, smart, stupid. You know, sometimes one through phenomenal genius, really, can come up with something that's absolutely wrong, utterly false. So what's the guard against it? The guard against it, there's a, there's a phrase in English that we say, tried and true. Meaning to say that it's, it's, it's gone through the test of being tried. And, and it's actually produced results, and we've seen that it's produced results. Um, there's, a, there's a famous uh, quote from Mark Twain that I'm paraphrasing, which is that uh, I was amazed how much my father learned when I came back from college. <laughs> Uh, meaning to say that while he was at college learning and he was growing, he came back and then further appreciated just what his father had been saying all along. So let's go deeper into this idea. You know, I have this, this privilege of davening with someone, um, Rabbi Yitzchak, and he, uh, he told me, that, uh, that he was actually in a gas chamber. Now, this is not, he went through the Holocaust. This was not, he was in Auschwitz. This was, he was in a gas chamber. And something happened, whatever it is, they ran out of gas, something happened, the, the, the gas didn't go off, and he got out of the gas chamber. Now, I don't know, he's alive today. I I mean, he's a walking, living, breathing miracle. How many people did that happen to? I, and how many of them are alive today? 
So, so to be able to see the world the way he sees it, to, that's one example. That's one example. What he knows that I don't know. Um, someone who's gotten married, someone who's had a child, they, they see the world differently. They understand the world better. Someone who's a grandparent, I'm not a grandparent. Someone who's suffered a terrible illness and then recovered. Someone who's fought in a war. Think about how much more they understand about humanity, how much they understand about what this world really is. So, so intellect, again, is very good. But intellect filtered through life's experience That's what produces wisdom. So why am I telling you this? Because the Torah itself is the embodiment of wisdom. The Torah is the embodiment of wisdom. That means that when the Torah tells you something, it's coming from the standpoint of having experienced or knowing all experience. And giving you the point of view from the standpoint of experience itself. Many of us, all of us, we're all going through a process. We're all going through a a, a spiritual journey. All of us are. Some of us hear about something in the Torah and we go, no, I disagree, or not for me. And then we get a little bit older and then we go, oh yeah, you know, that actually makes sense. So what changed? Did the the Torah change? The Torah didn't change. We acquired more wisdom. And then from the standpoint of our wisdom, we saw the wisdom that was sitting there all along. So, So what a gift we've been given. To be able to have the repository of all of wisdom waiting for us. And then... It takes an act of humility on our part for us to say, okay, well, maybe maybe the Torah knows more. Maybe Hashem knows more. He obviously does. He obviously does. But, you know, ah, and then we have to sort of sculpt our minds and sort of curb our desire in such a way. And then we discover another rhythm to the universe. And sometimes that's a little bit awkward because it's sort of like, well, that doesn't quite feel right. I'm not used to that. I'm not used to that. And then it, all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, that, that feels right. That feels right. I tell you always, one of my favorite all-time Torahs, what's the difference between an Avera, right? Like going against the Torah, making a mistake, whatever it is, doing something not so right. And... And a cold mikvah. <laughs> What's the difference between loosely translated a sin and a cold mikvah? So this Revi, I wish I could tell you who, said that with a sin, you go, ah, ooh. And with a cold mikvah, you go, ooh, ah. <laughs> Some people who 
we would just, uh, we would just, like, give, give anything to be able to sit down with. We'd be able to, you know, if you, let's say you're in, a, you're in the movie industry, to be able to sit one-on-one with Steven Spielberg, say, and to ask him questions. Or if you're into science, right, to be able to sit down with one of the great Nobel Prize winners and to ask them these questions. Or if you have religious questions, what would it be like to, to sit down with the, the Baal Shem Tov or with the Ari or with, or with Abraham Avinu or with Moshe Rabbeinu? What would it be like to be able to sit down and ask them their questions directly? Well, guess what? We've got the Torah here and the Torah is giving us all of the answers to all of our questions before we've even asked them and it's coming from God Himself. I mean, how awesome an opportunity is that? And you can get it for a few dollars. <laughs> you know, one of the most, I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. It was actually kind of a heartbreaking moment when it happened to me. The, um, the uh, Ish Kodesh, the Piyasesna Rebbe, he was the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto. And... Um, you know, he wrote this, this classic work of Torah, and he wrote it not just like, hey, you know, economic times are hard. You know, look on the bright side. He brought it while millions of people were being slaughtered around him. Okay? This is like, you know, like we can't even compare it, right? And he wrote these divrei chizuk, these words of incredible Torah in the midst, in the midst of hell. This is the Eish Kodesh. And there's a whole miracle story how the, the book even survived. He hid the book in the destroyed Warsaw Ghetto and he wrote a note. He said, you know something? Whoever finds this, he says, it could be that there are no more Jews in Europe anymore. He says, but you know something? There will be at least some Jews in Israel because this is God's promise to us that the Jewish people will never be destroyed. If you find this manuscript, go and bring it. Bring it so that it can get published and it will be a blessing for you, it will be a reward for you. And they found it amidst the ruins of the Warsaw Ghetto. They found it buried, the Eish Kodesh. So it's a, it's a miracle that the book even survived. Right? In fact, Reb Shlomo's, one of Reb Shlomo's most famous stories, if you, if you ever have a chance to listen to it, it will bring tears to your eyes. It's called The Holy Hunchback. It's worth, um, it's worth getting. And... Uh, Anyway, it's all about a student of the Piyasesna Rebbe. It's, it's an awesome, awesome story. Anyway, why am I bringing this up? Because I got a copy of the Eish Kodesh. I got a copy of this, this, this holy book. It was $13. I mean, how much should it cost? Hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Millions of dollars? It's $13. I mean... How does the mind even hold that thought, right? And the Torah itself? A a few more dollars than that, right? So, so the truth is available. The truth is available. You know, we, we live in a, in a world where people love to, you know, go, ah, how can I ever know the truth? Can we ever really know the truth? What is the truth? Here's the truth. It's right here. It's between two 
suckers. It's right here. You don't have to look any harder than this. It's right here. I mean, it's amazing that it's so unamazing. <laughs> People sort of like, you know, wonder and philosophize about the nature of the truth. What's that? That's all to conceal the truth. So that, therefore, I don't have to do it. So I can just do whatever I want. But it's all done in the guise of, of searching, thinking, wondering. Okay, so there's, there's a lot of that also. That's also part of the human condition. I don't want to denigrate that. That's, that's, that's part of the process too. Especially for us, most of us are born in a generation where we didn't grow up with it and it's natural for us to have questions and to scratch our heads and to, and to take one step back forward and two step backwards. I'm, I'm acknowledging all of that. But we also have to take five steps back from that point of view and realize that that, that, it's, that it exists and that it's available. That's all. Okay. So, I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about uh, the Mishkan. Um, we're, we're in the month of Nisan, and this is the month of miracles. This is an awesome, awesome month. And really, its counterpoint in the calendar is the month of Tishrei. Tishrei is, of course, the month where we have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot and some Torah and everything like that. Um, Nisan is its counterpoint, where in Tishrei you're returning to Hashem from a standpoint of Yira, from a standpoint of awe and tshuva and everything like that. It's sort of like, you're just sort of like overwhelmed and you're really examining your life and trying to correct any mistakes and everything like that. That's the capital of, 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 of that form of service to God. Nisan, this month that we're in right now, which is where... Pesach comes. This is the capital of Tshuva Me'ava, returning to Hashem out of love. And it's really the open revelation of Hashem. And because we have all the miracles of leaving Egypt and everything like that, and of course we have a, an opinion in Gomorrah Rosh Hashanah and Daf Yud Aleph, which says that the future redemption is also going to come in this month, in Nisan, just like it came when we left Egypt, so it's going to come again in this month. So really, and it says that the miracles when Mashiach comes are going to be even greater than the miracles when we left Egypt. So again, all of this is pointing to open revelation. And like we always say, every single month of the year has a different permutation of the Yudke Vavke, where the name of Hashem is mixed in a different way. Well, the mixing, quote-unquote, of Nisan is no mixing at all. The, the, the arrangement of the name of Hashem is Yud and He and Vav and He. In other words, it's the straight, straight revelation. Okay. So now, part of this is the dedication of the Mishkan. What was the Mishkan? It was a microcosm of the entire universe. And it says that Hashem rejoiced at the dedication of the Mishkan like He rejoiced when He had created the entire world. Now, I want to share some sort of a, perhaps a, a new way of looking at the Mishkan and the the dedication of the Mishkan, or if you will, the activation of the Mishkan, that um, in a moment. But, but first, just kind of this uh, visualization came to me, and, and I just want to share it with you, which is that, um, I'm sure many people have said it before, but I don't know if I ever heard it. Um, you know, what a person would do is they would bring a Corbin, 
Korban comes from the word karov, which means to become close with. Okay? So because you're coming closer to God and you're sort of repairing something that's kind of gone wrong, or you're acknowledging something that's gone right. You know, because you had a, a Thanksgiving offer, offering, a Korban Toda it's called, where something great happens and you just want to sort of like, just uh, say thank you to Hashem. Okay. But in every instance of it, it's, it's bonding yourself to God and it's coming closer with God. But sort of the, the classic Corbin is something that's repairing something that you made a mistake in, in some way or, or, or another. So that's really the classic Corbin, okay? Now you bring an animal, and it wasn't always animals. Sometimes it was, um, you know, a, uh, like a flower offering or something like this, okay? So, it, you know, some of the offerings were vegetarian, if you will. Um, <laughs> and there's an opinion by the third base of Migdash that it's, they're going to be vegetarian again. You should know such an opinion exists. Okay. Um, so, 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 uh, but again, the classic offering was an animal. Okay. So, 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 so how are we to understand this? So you bring an animal and the animal is... Is, is slaughtered, and then it's, it's actually cut open, and you put certain of the organs on the Mizbeach, and some of the blood is, is, is sprinkled by the, by the altar, the Mizbeach, and then it's eaten by the Kohen, and some of, in some instances, the whole thing just goes up to Hashem, and in other instances, some part goes to the Kohen, and part goes to you. There, there are different variations of it, okay? But if you will... It's all very exact in terms of the ordering of, the, of, of what happens to the animal once you bring it. It all becomes very exact and very ordered. Okay? Now I want to say the following thought. The animal represents your nefesh behema, your yetzahara, your animal instinct. And what you're doing is you're slaughtering your animal instinct and then it becomes properly arranged. In other words, there's a rectification of that brute force that you haven't quite mastered. You haven't gotten control of it. And remember, I'm always thinking of the Torah of Rabbi Nachman of Breslau, that the three forces that human beings have the hardest time controlling, food, money, and intimacy. Food, money, and intimacy. And if you want another perspective of what Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon says, that there's nothing new under the sun, you go, okay, well, the ancients were the ancients, they were all primitive and, you know, I'm, you know, a superior being because I can watch Oprah, or you know what I mean? Because that's the modern era, right? And I can even watch Oprah while on my laptop on an airplane. So therefore, I must be, you know, way superior to someone 2,000 or 3,000 years ago, right? I mean, it's so superficial as to be idiotic, that perspective, right? If you think that from the beginning of time, everyone's been wrestling over food, money, and intimacy, you realize, wow, I'm no better than them. In fact, I'm probably worse than them. So, I mean, humanity is humanity. And we can't delude ourselves into thinking that because we have cell phones, somehow the Torah doesn't apply to us because... Where, where does it say all tell or AT&T in the Chumash, right? 
I'm sure you could find it with the codes and things like that. <laughs> you could probably find your best plan, right? <laughs> you could probably save a lot of money if you put that in, but anyway, we'll, we'll hold off on that for a moment. Um, but anyway, so, so, so it all comes from a lack of mastery over one's instinctual urges. And, and so, so we bring that run amok urge to the Beis Hamikdash, which is the microcosm of the universe where everything is in its proper place. Remember how many letters, how many words, how many parshas of the Torah are devoted to the exact blueprint and the exact building of the Mishkan, of the Beis Hamikdash, right? Everything is totally exact because this is the microcosm of the universe as it exists in complete harmony and perfection. So now, into that place, and remember, you have to be ritually pure too, men, women alike. In fact, there's even a special Corbin if by accident you were not ritually pure and you walked into the base of Migdash, right? That, that in itself required an atonement, all right? So you have to be pure yourself and you're walking in now, you know, with a physicalization of an urge that you had that ran amok and now that urge is shechted, it's slaughtered, and it's properly arranged to be back in harmony. Right? And then, and then, listen to this, because technically speaking, if it's the type of Corbin, type of offering, that needed to be eaten, as many were, it says that the offering didn't come until the Kohen, right, the one administering, ate the Corbin. In other words, I would have thought maybe after I laid my hands and, you know, confessed whatever I had done, maybe that's the end of the chuba process. And then the rest of it, just the killing of the animals, the processing of the, you know, of the chuba. That's not the case. Maybe I would have thought that once you kill the animal, well, that represents the urge. So I killed the beast. That's the end. And the rest is just sort of the processing. That's not true either. Maybe it's the ordering, like I'm suggesting. That's not it either. It's when the Kohen eats it. In other words, once that urge, now rectified, becomes internalized, that's the fixing. That's the fixing. You took something that went to the wrong place, now it's back in the right place. It's been internalized. In its perfected form, now, now we're back in. Okay, so that's that's always the process. That's always the process. And that's always people's greatest criticism against religious people, quote unquote, which is that that last step somehow is always left out. That internalization of the teachings is somehow left out, that it's all about ritual or movement or or whatever it is, you know, that that somehow it's all about that. Well, it's not supposed to be all about that. But it's very easy for it to become all about that. You know? As we said in the name of the Kutzkarebi, that even the performance of mitzvahs themselves can be turned into idol worship. Which sounds like such a revolutionary, radical thing to say. How can you possibly say performing a mitzvah could be like idol worship? And the answer is, if your whole 
service and your whole focus is just on the mitzvah itself and not understanding that the mitzvah is the divine pathway to connect with Hashem, then you, you, you haven't done the mitzvah properly. So again, that, that follow-through, that understanding that the mitzvah leads you to a connection to God, that the, that the korban is only finished once the kohen eats it, and that process is internalized and rectified, that that's the completion of tshuva. Okay, very important. All right, now let's go on to the next step. Let's talk about the dedication, or as I'd like to say, the, the, acti- the, the activation of the, of, the, of the Mishkan. You see, it happened, on, it happened on the first day of Nisan, and uh, there's another opinion, actually, that it happened on the eighth day of Nisan. Okay? Either way, it's right in the beginning of Nisan. Um, because there was a seven-day preparatory period where Moshe set up the Mishkan, Moshe offered a korban, took down the Mishkan. Remember, the Mishkan is this amazing thing. It, it, was, it was made to be broken down and to be rebuilt. Now, that's very, very, very significant for the following reason. We have a teaching from the Rishonah Rebbe. It says in the Gomorrah and Megillah that where you see the word Vayahi, this portends something negative. Something bad's about to happen. Where you see the word Vahaya, something positive is about to happen. Okay? It's just a rule that we have in understanding how the Torah works. Parsha Shmini, which directly discusses the dedication of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, the, the inauguration of it, begins with the word Vayahi. Now, we just said that Hashem celebrated with the dedication of the Mishkan like He celebrated when the whole world was created. How can it begin with the word Vayahi? Okay. So, so the Rishner says something absolutely heartbreaking. He says, you know why? You know why it's sort of like a sad word there? He said, because... It wasn't supposed to be a building. Each one of us personally was supposed to be a Mishkan. Each one of us personally was supposed to be a Mishkan. And Ayvavoy, Vayahi, that it had to be a building instead of us individually. But from this you see that, that the human being, the human body, each person is also a sanctuary. And we're destined to become Mish- Mishkans again in the future. That, during the ultimate rectification, that status will be restored to us. Not only that, but you see that the Chachamim, the sages, take great pains to show how the Mishkan itself is not just a miniature of the universe, but it's a miniature of the human body as well. So, with that in mind, think about how significant it is that that before the Mishkan actually had its great day, when Aaron Akohim brings the very first korban to it, that Moshe Rabbeinu puts up the Mishkan and then breaks it down. Puts it up the next day, breaks it down. In other words, understanding that the Mishkan is also the individual. Understanding how much we have to break ourselves down and put ourselves back together break ourselves down 
and put ourselves back together. Break ourselves down, put ourselves back together. It's a seven-day process. And then you have the eighth day, which correlates with the creation of the world. In other words, I'll say it another way. One of my favorite teachings from Reb Shlomo, he says, he says, you know, everybody loves a finished product. Everybody loves you when you're a grape, and everybody loves you when you're wine. But do you know what a grape has to go through to become wine? How much it has to be stepped on? Right? He says, who loves you when you're in between? He says, your real friends love you when you're in between. Right? And I want to add to that to say, you know, the world, as we always say, the world is in between. And the people who love God right now, those are God's real friends. While the world is still in between. Before the world reaches its manatikun, its time of perfection. So, Moshe Rabbeinu, before the eighth day, he's building up the Mishkan, he's breaking it down. He's building it up, he's breaking it down. And you know, this correlates with another teaching. One of my favorite psukim, um, chapter 2, verse 4 in, in Breshis, where it uses the word Bahibaram. It's talking about, it's, a, it's one of the summaries after, after the account of the creation of the world. I'll read it in English. It says, these are the products of heaven and the earth when they were created. Bahibaram means when they were created. On the day that Hashem... Yudke Vavke, the first mention of Yudke Vavke in the Torah, Hashem God made the heaven and earth. So the Zohar says Bihibaram, the letters can be rearranged to spell Ba Abraham, meaning to say, for the sake of Abraham the world was created, which means very simply, for the sake of the righteous person, for the sake of the recognition of the oneness of God in this world, the world was created. So I ask myself the question, Bihibaram, if it means Ba'avraham, why not just write Baha, ba, ba, why not just write Ba'avraham? Why, 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 why spell it differently? Why put it out of sequence? So I wanted to say an answer to that. How the tzaddik takes himself apart and puts himself back together and is constantly rearranging, rearranging himself to make himself the ideal structure for the situation that he needs to be in the time. Let me explain further. Reb Shlomo says in the name of the Ishbitzer that there are two types of Jews. They're the highway Jews and the step-by-step Jews. The highway Jews say, okay, here's the basic path. There's Shabbos, there's Kashrus, there's Tahars, Hamishbacha, there's whatever it is, okay? So this is the path I'm walking down. That's the path of the Torah. He says, then they're the step-by-step Jews. The step-by-step Jews, every step that they take, every moment in their life, they're evaluating the situation around them, and they're asking themselves, what does God want from me this moment? What does God want from me this moment? According to the Torah, where, where should my priorities be? Because a person can be saying, ah, I'm hungry, I have a mitzvah, it's keeping kosher, I'm crossing the street, there's the kosher restaurant. Meanwhile, they're walking by the poor person in front of them. 
So that's, you can be like a highway Jew, right? You've got the general picture. Ah, but if you're a step-by-step Jew, then you're not going to miss the immediate opportunity. So I'm hungry right now. I'm really hungry. So what do I have to do? I have to take myself apart and put myself back together. Because right now, this is the situation that's called for. So before you can get into this place of harmony, which is the finished Mishkan, you have to be in a place of utmost flexibility. Utmost flexibility. Understanding how to arrange and rearrange yourself. This is the Bihibaram, which is the Ba'avraham. Knowing what to do and how to be in the moment. And if there's something that's missing or if there's something that's out of whack, not to be afraid to take yourself apart and rebuild yourself. Now on the eighth day, it's time for the dedication. The first dedication that comes is Aaron Aklain. Aaron the high priest. He comes and he offers something. And um, Moshe actually has to encourage him. Because Aaron feels like, you know, Basu, that, that uh, you know, maybe because of the Chetah Egel, the sin of the golden calf, which Aaron had participated in, he tried to avoid it, but anyway, he had been involved on some level. Maybe I'm not the one to do it, I'm not worthy of doing it. Moshe encourages him, don't worry, don't worry, just go ahead. And he offers the Korban, and a fire comes down from heaven and consumes it. There's sort of like a nervous period where the fire doesn't come down, but then the fire comes down. Okay. There's actually a very important teaching in that also, which is that Hashem is not an ATM cash machine. <laughs> Meaning to say, again, how many parshas, how many, how many, how much, how much ink of the Torah is put to explain exactly how everything should be done. And everything was arranged perfectly. And Hashem Himself testifies that everything was done perfectly. And then Aaron brings the korban. He brings the offering before God. And then nothing happens. And then something happens. The desired result happens. But it didn't happen just because we did that. In other words, God has His timetable. And we should understand that in our own lives, it's very important. We can be doing everything right, and we go, well, I'm doing, well, I'm trying to do everything right anyway. I'm trying anyway. I'm doing my best. So why am I not getting, why am I not getting? Because Hashem is not an ATM. Hashem sees what you're doing, and He's waiting. He's waiting for the right moment. And it will come. It will come. So the fire does come down. It does come down. Then we have the whole incident with Nadav and Avihu. Right? Let's put that off to the side for the moment. Where they kind of make a mistake in terms of what they're supposed to do. And then comes Nachshon, the leader of the tribe of Yehuda, the first of the twelve tribes coming to make the offering on behalf of the people. So how do we understand all of these different dedication offerings? So I would like to suggest a, a very sort of maybe clear way of understanding the nature of how the Mishkan was, was dedicated. And to begin with this, we have to understand something, which is the Mishkan is compared to the neck, the neck in the body. And um, why? 
Because the neck connects the head with the rest of the body. In other words, the Mishkan connects heaven and earth. And where do you see the Mishkan compared to the neck? When Yosef Hatzadik cries after he reveals himself to his brothers, he cries on the neck of Binyamin, and Binyamin cries on his neck, and if you look at the Rashi there, it says, what were they crying about? The destruction of the Mishkan in Shiloh, and the destruction of the Beis Migdash. So here you see very clearly, the neck is compared to the Mishkan, to the Beis Migdash, And it makes sense, because again, the neck is that connection between the head and the body, or the Mishkan is the connection between heaven and earth. Okay. Now with that in mind, we can understand the orderings of the dedication offerings very well now. Aaron represents above to below. And that's why when he brought his offering, a fire comes down from heaven and it comes below. That's the connection between heaven and earth. But another trailway had to be blazed as well, which is the connection between earth and heaven. And now you see something very, very interesting, which is that Nachshon is the first person to initiate this pathway. Why Nachshon? Who's Nachshon? So Nachshon is the person who jumped into the Red Sea before it split. He was the one who triggered the splitting of the Red Sea. And by the way, I just learned that there's a Medrash that says that there were other people vying for the honor to jump into the water first. And they even threw stones at each other that they should be the one who gets to jump into the water first. I had never heard that before. Okay? So I always thought Nachshon was like a lone wolf, but it shows you the, the Jewish people were there. They, they knew what was required. So that's, that's pretty amazing in and of itself. Anyway, Nachshon jumps in and the water splits. Now let's think about that for a moment in the context of what we're saying, blazing this path from below to above. What does it mean to jump into the water and for the water to split? Well, when you jump into the water, the water is still on the, the level of the number seven, if you will. Nature. Still very much part of nature. But then, through that act of amuna, faith in God, what happens is, this miracle takes place. That's the level eight. Right? Splits open. What's the whole idea? What did we say the whole idea of the Mishkan is? The offering goes from this world to above. From the level seven to the level 8. So doesn't it make sense? Who, who better on behalf of the Jewish people than Nachshon to be the one to blaze this pathway from 7 to 8, from Teva to Lamalam in Teva, nature to beyond nature. That's Nachshon. Now I got sort of excited when I put that together. So I thought, but wait a second, let's go deeper. <laughs> Let's see it in the letters themselves. So, Aaron, Aaron, we just said represents heaven to earth, right? So, it, looks, it works very well. Aaron, the first letter is Aleph. Aleph represents heaven. Aleph, the gematria, is number one. The numerical value is number one. Stands for heaven, stands for God. And, of course, we all know the teaching that the letter Aleph is actually composed of three letters. 
two yuds and a vav. And if you add those together, yud and yud and vav adds up to 26, which is the numerical value of the holiest name of Hashem. Right? The yud ke vav ke is 26. So all that's contained within the letter Aleph, which represents Hashem. So, so from heaven to earth, it's Aaron, starts with the letter Aleph, and it ends with the letter Nun. Nun is 50. We know that there are 50 levels from heaven down to earth. So it's going from above to below. So that, that, that works, okay? But now, now, let's, um, oh wow, that's intense. Okay, so the, so the middle two letters of Aaron spell out Har, that's 205, and you add those together and you get 7. That's called the Mispar Kutten, the small number. The middle letters of Aaron are 7. So what did we just say? It's going from above to below. It's going from this level 8 down to 7, from heaven down to earth. Okay, so all that's contained within the name Aaron. Now let's look at the, the name Nachshon. Nachshon, you see something really beautiful. Again, this, this whole level. But, but, by the way, I, I just want to pause to say right now, what we just said, I, I like to call it the, the, the map of the cosmos. Um, when we talk about the 50 levels from, from earth to heaven, and that they're contained within the Mishkan, where do we see a direct proof that this applies to the Mishkan also, that the Mishkan correlates with these 50 levels, is where David HaMelech, it says in Tanakh, David HaMelech went to buy the area where Har Habayas is, where the Beis HaMikdash was. And the Tanakh records exactly how much he paid for it. 50 gold shekels. So you see this number 50 is very exact when we're discussing the Mishkan. Because it goes from earth to the 50th level of heaven, the Shar Hamishim. Okay, so this is it's very important that you understand 50 is not a random number. It's really talking about the, the, the whole heavens and specifically the Mishkan in relation with the heavens. Okay. Now let's go to Nachshon. Nachshon, his, his, his name starts with the letter Nun, and it ends with the letter Nun. <laughs> but here we see an extra level. Because there are not just 50 levels from your baseline to heaven. There's also 50 levels of Tuma. 50 levels of impurity. So you've got your baseline over here, and you've got 50 below, and you've got 50 above. Okay? So what is Nachshon representing the Jewish people, right? Representing going from below to above? Represent that anyone can go from the lowest, 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 lowest level. You can start at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. Right? Negative 50. <laughs> Negative 50. And then you can go all the way up to the top. Nachshon, Nun, all the way up to Nun. And that's available to all of us. That's available to all of us, right? These are the pathways that were blazed. Now, if you look at the middle three letters of Nachshon, what number do you think it spells? Eight. Right? Which is what we said, Nachshon's great power. Right? Going from this world up above to the next. Okay. So... 
So I learned in the name of the Zohar that once a window is opened in heaven, it never closes. We, we don't have Eliyahu. Well, I guess he comes down, so we do, but Avram Avinu, Yitzchak, Yaakov. Say something about Yaakov for a moment, but let me just finish this idea. All the great Siddiquim, all of our great holy mothers and fathers that have lived, they all opened up windows in heaven. All those windows remain open. Everyone should know. Nachshon, Aaron, all these windows remain open. Everyone should understand that. That's very important. Um, so, so what about us? What are we supposed to do? So the Mishkan, the Mishkan is, is also compared to the heart. There's a beautiful song, Vilvavi, which talks about the dedication of the Mishkan in the heart. And, and this is something that we can all do. That when we make ourselves, you know, it's a, a story that I heard a long time ago and I like it so much. I've shared it with you before. The young son who wants to have his father play with him and his father's exhausted and he just wants to read the newspaper. And the son is like, come on, let's play. And the father's like, you know, doesn't know what to tell him. So he takes a page out of the newspaper that's got a map of the world on it. And he rips it into a lot of different pieces like a jigsaw puzzle. And he says, okay, look, when you can put this together, then we'll play. So the father thinks, you know, he's bought himself a, a lot of time there, you know. And the son comes right back. And he's got the whole thing assembled. And the father's amazed. How'd you do it? And the son says, well, you know something? On the other side of the page, there was a picture of a person. And once I put the person together, the whole world came together. So, so there are all these, like awesome global problems and it's so easy to get intimidated and yet the Torah tells us something over and over and over and over and over and over again which is that ultimately it's just a, it's just this all this this whole world all of human history it's just the story of individuals it's individuals relating with each other it's individuals trying to fix themselves and seen in that context the building of the heart, understanding that the Mishkan is the heart. You know, rectifying our heart, making our hearts whole, which means also making them broken, right? They say there's no heart that's more full than a broken heart. What does that mean? Right? That means I have to be miserable <laughs> in order to be holy. That's not what it means. A broken heart means that there's a piece missing, which means that there's space for God. You know, one of my favorite all-time teachings is, uh, and I, I heard this in the name of one of the great Rebbe's, and then I, years and years later, I found the person who said it, 
And I found out that it was actually said by a biker in drug rehab um, who had tattoos up and down his arms. <laughs> but somehow it made me actually appreciate this teaching more, not less, which is that said that every single person is created with a God-shaped hole inside of them. And those of us who are more sensitive, we, we feel that there's something missing from our lives. And a lot of us try to fill it with drugs or with inappropriate relationships or with career things or with food or with materialism or with all sorts of things. But if you've ever tried to assemble a jigsaw puzzle, you know, just that piece is the only piece that fits. You know, you can try to bang another piece into that same space, but it's not going to fit. So all of us, on purpose... On purpose, this was God's plan. We're created with a God-shaped hole inside of us. And the only thing that fits that, that fills that space, is God himself. And if you sense that missing, the question isn't, what's wrong with you? It's what's right with you. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's to create an opening for longing. For kite, for yearning. That's what it means when it says there's no heart that's so full as a broken heart. That's what it means. That's what it means that there's a piece of you that feels like it can't be complete unless you're reaching out and attaching to God. And that's how completion is achieved. Because no person is completely self-sufficient. And we strive for self-sufficiency. You know... I've heard Rabbi Wine give the example of, you know, it's like the whole concept of self-sufficiency, it's so seductive. It's so seductive to be able to say, I don't need you and I don't need anybody. I'm going to do it all by myself. But what can that be compared to? A blanket, right, on a chilly night that's just a little too small. <laughs> so you, 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 you move it this way, but now... This part of your body is exposed. So you cover up that, but now this part of your body is exposed. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not supposed to work. Because the thing is, is that that, that sense of incompleteness is actually a blessing. It's a blessing that allows us to connect to the ultimate, ultimate source, which paradoxically gives us the ultimate sense of completion. Right? So, Shem should bless us. We should, we should build that Mishkan inside of us. And we should realize the ultimate beauty of the world that's all waiting for us. Have a great week. Yeah.